Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture, wrapping up another busy week. Glad you have joined us as we look ahead to next week, of course. Uh, will we get a vote on the farm bill in the House? We're going to talk about that with a member of the House Ag Committee, Illinois Congressman Rodney Davis here in just a moment. Also coming up on today's show, Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone. We'll have a complete rundown of yesterday's USDA numbers. We're going to talk with Don Parrish with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Looks like uh, the rewrite of waters of the U.S. is being pushed back. Could be 2019 before we see it. Uh, the new rule, Administrator Scott Pruitt of EPA had told us a few weeks ago that it would be this year, but now they are pushing it back. We'll find out what's the latest there. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about rural health care today with the uh, National Rural Health Association. So lots to talk about, but let's start right with the farm bill. Joining us now, Illinois Congressman Rodney Davis. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Uh, are we going to get a vote next week? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, we've been uh, whipping just ag committee members, different members asking about concerns. My card came back pretty solid. Um, you know, I'm just hoping that we can get a good compromise. But the sad part is, Mike, it's only going to be Republican votes because even the Democrats that represent rural areas that serve on the House Ag Committee, they they basically just handed over their opportunity to, to have their ideas heard. And all they did was complain about a process that they didn't that they chose not to even participate in. Yeah, they have uh, stepped up their attacks on the bill, especially on the on the nutrition title. So that does make it critical if you're going to get it passed that you're going to have to shore up support within your own party. We know there have been some meetings going on. Uh, working with the various uh, factions of your of your party, and even meetings with uh, Secretary Purdue and the president. Now there was word yesterday that the president might, uh, you know, threaten to veto the bill if he didn't like what was in there as far as worker requirements and things like that. But he seems to have backed off of that. What are you hearing from the White House? Well, I, I haven't been in direct contact with the White House or the administration outside of uh, uh, chatting with Sonny Purdue last week about the bill, and he was. He was offering very favorable comments about where we were with the House version. And look, this this discussion and debate from the other side, from the Democrats, even on the House Ag Committee on work requirements, we are at historic low unemployment. And we still have 9 million more people on SNAP benefits than when we had 9.5% unemployment. Our goal should be to get people off of SNAP benefits. I was just reading a, a Chicago Tribune story about this issue. And there is so much misinformation out there, Mike, and I hope your, your listeners get this cleared up. There was a, a, somebody who works 30 hours a week who's recently released from prison a few years ago trying to get back on their feet. They are not going to lose their SNAP benefits because they're doing what is right. They're actually trying to get out into the workforce. That's, those are the people that are going to be able to remain on those benefits. But it's the, it's the 67,000 people we have here in Illinois that don't fit that category, that we want to pair up and invest a billion dollars a year nationwide in getting them training to get jobs that we know are available, even in rural America, which is where I live. Yeah, it's being portrayed by uh, those that oppose it as mean-spirited and uh, driving people off uh, the roles of uh, the program that need the help the most. Uh, what's your response to yeah. that? 
it amazes me that here in America that those of us who have seen the poverty program, the anti-poverty programs over the last few decades, as they've been rolled out, they've been perpetuating more poverty. So all we've ever heard over the last three years, last three decades has been, let's get people more education. Let's get them certification. We are doing that in this bill. Think about this. A commercial driver's license in the state of Illinois, if, if going to school full-time, you can get that in about seven weeks. We are offering to pay for that training for somebody who wants to do that. And when they graduate and they get that CDL, they go to the Secretary of State's office in Illinois, they get that license. They can walk into McLean Distribution in my hometown of 11,000 people in Taylorville, Illinois. They can apply, and they will be immediately hired for a job that pays them $70,000 a year. The only way to get families out of this cycle of poverty is to get them jobs like that that are available right now. We're expecting silence, not amendments uh, from uh Democrats on the floor when it comes up. Are you expecting many amendments on the Republican side? There will be amendments on the Republican side. Uh, the silence is is a, a pretty telling about where the priorities are, even for rural state Democrats. Um, this is not a good place, I believe, for many people who, who are Democrats that I serve with on the House Ag Committee that represent areas where rural America is their district. And to be silent means that you're not actually, you're abdicating your legislative priorities, your job, which is to, if you don't like a bill, go in and try and make it better. And if you can't make it better, then vote against it. But at least participate in the process. That's what happened four years ago when when I just got to Congress and got a chance to, to work the last farm bill. It was invigorating. It was bipartisan. And frankly, it was good for the American taxpayer because instead of only saving $23 billion, our last bill saved 112. Will there be any attempts to change crop insurance? Well, I'm sure there will be, and we'll have those fights on our hands. And, and this is another area where if the Democrats would like to, to allow poison pill amendments to get into the bill, they may play games. And that's why anybody who cares about crop insurance needs to make sure that if they're represented by a Democrat in Congress who, who may be serving on the Ag Committee, who has said, I'm for crop insurance, if they vote against the crop, if they vote for an anti-crop insurance amendment to kill the overall bill, then they need to be held accountable by their voters. Will you have uh, the support of the Freedom Caucus on the vote? You know, I'm part of an organ, part of a group that gets together weekly with uh, different groups of our. Uh, as the chairman of our Main Street Caucus, I get together with the chair of the Freedom Caucus, the chair of our Tuesday group, Republican Study Committee with the speaker every week and um, I've got good comments out of my colleagues uh, we're going to see what the amendment process looks like uh, but we've got to get the votes unfortunately on the Republican side because again every Democrat on the House Agriculture Committee and every Democrat in Congress unless something changes over the next week are not going to participate in the process and they're just going to complain about a process that they chose not to actually participate in do you know how close you are to having the enough votes if I did, I sure wouldn't tell you. <laughs> well, I thought it was worth asking, though. I thought I'd take a chance. <laughs> keep, keep taking that chance because the only number that matters is, uh, is that one we get. Um, and I would doubt that we would get that bill to the floor uh, as quickly as possible if we didn't at least know that we had a shot to pass it. 
All right. So next week we'll we'll find out, perhaps, right? Absolutely. And uh, and frankly, if uh, if some if hiccups arise uh, through the amendment process, or if they arise uh, just because of inter-party battles on the Republican side, then that's where Democrats should be able to participate in this process. But their leaders, Nancy Pelosi and her deputy Steny Hoyer, have put the hammer down and said that no Democrat is going to participate in this farm bill debate. And that is the antithesis of what many Democrats who represent rural districts ran on, and they need to be held accountable. All right, we'll see what happens. Illinois Congressman Rodney Davis, thank you, sir. Thanks, Mike. Take care. So we'll see what happens next week. Will we get a vote on that House Farm Bill? Coming up next, we're going to talk waters of the U.S. Stay with us on AOA. Adams on Agriculture. All right, crew, let's get her dug. Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember? No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project, so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this, or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. I'm here to tell you that your options for getting out of debt have never been better. How do I know? Because I'm Howard Dvorkin, the founder of Consolidated Credit. For nearly two decades, we've helped over 5 million people just like you. And every time we help someone, they all say the same thing. Why didn't I call sooner? If you owe too much money on your credit cards and you feel that you'll never be able to pay it off, don't wait. Simply pick up the phone and find out what our Freedom Quest program can do for you. Reducing your payments by up to 50% is just the beginning, but you have to take the first step. When credit card debt is the problem, we're the solution. Call Consolidated Credit now. As soon as you call, the hard part is over. Call Consolidated Credit now. 1-800-489-7204. 1-800-489-7204. That's 1-800-489-7204. 5701 Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Licensed debt management service provider, Vermont and New York Banking Departments, Maryland 49, Oregon DM80031. We paid less for our Craftmatic today than we did 20 years ago. If you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and free information on today's Craftmatic adjustable beds. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Rated number one by consumers nationwide on ConsumerAffairs.com. Craftmatic beds come in all mattress types, including cool gel memory foam for up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Enjoy temporary relief of low back pain, poor circulation, nighttime heart for a mild arthritis. You'll sleep better in a Craftmatic adjustable bed. So if you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and information. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Discover Craftmatic for less, up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Call 1-800-318-7903. That's 1-800-318-7903. 1-800-318-7903. Call now. 
information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Welcome back. Just a couple of weeks ago when I was in Washington, D.C., uh, part of the group with the National Association of Farm Broadcasting, we were talking with EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, and he kind of laid it out for Waters of the U.S. that uh, in the May-June time period, their new rule would be out, and he thought they would have it uh, done by the end of the year, the whole process. Well, now we're hearing that EPA has delayed its timeline for rewriting the Waters of the U.S. rule. The final version now, not expected until September of next year. And let's talk about that with Don Parrish with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Don, is this a setback? I don't think so, Mike. And and what it is, you guys were hearing it straight from from the administrator. And if nothing, the administrator is optimistic about you know kind of what it takes to to get all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. He he pushes real hard. But but what people are referring to right now that that seems to have a, a lot longer time frame to it is is the regulatory agenda that is published by the agency. And, and it's published not only by EPA, but the Corps of Engineers. And within that agenda, uh, we think they've they put a timeline down there that kind of aligns with what the administrator was saying a couple of weeks ago, but it probably fully fleshes out for the agency and for the public exactly the steps that the, the, the agencies are going to have to take in order to replace this rule. I remember talking with you right after the election, and uh, you reminded us then that the president just can't come in and wave his hand and, and WOTUS goes away. It is a process, and it can be a lengthy process. That's right. And, and I want to stress, Mike, to you and your listeners, don't get frustrated. Uh, this is hard. It is as hard as anything the administration has to do is to do regulations right. And the last thing we want them to do is to do a shoddy job. Uh, we want this to be a legacy. We want it to be lasting. We want it to stick. And we want them to do it right. And that means dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. Now, you've said you like the approach the administration has taken towards writing the new rule. Do we have any idea what may be in that new rule? We don't at this point. Uh, I would sure like to think that they're going to rely on the statute, which uses the term navigable waters as kind of the foundation uh, for uh, the authority that Congress granted the agency. But that doesn't mean they're only going to regulate navigable waters. Uh, but we hope that they, they do things that are going to be easy for the public to understand and easy for the federal government to administer. We don't want to hand the federal government unlimited discretion to basically walk up every ditch and erosion feature in the country to find jurisdiction. We want it to be clear. We want it to be understandable. We want the public to be able to embrace it in ways that that we can protect clean water and we can have clean water, but we need clear rules to obey the law. How much input does agriculture have into this new rule? Mike, uh, the administrator has done a lot of outreach. Uh, he's done outreach to the states, he's done outreach to the Congress, and he's done outreach to agriculture. And I can tell you that the people that work for the administrator has been listening. Uh, unlike the last administration that called a lot of our concerns silly, I think this administration, kind of from top to bottom, have been at least listening to farmers and ranchers. And I can tell you that on any any 
given day, there's been outreach on this rule, not just to farmers and ranchers, but also to states, to state regulatory agencies. And, and I think they're trying to piece together a rule that, that hopefully people can, can support and that people will understand will be protective of water quality as well as be easy to administer and easy for the public to understand. We're talking with Don Parrish of the American Farm Bureau Federation looking at the waters of the U.S. rule. It looks like it's going to be a while yet before we get this new rule. Uh, but, uh, Don, when we when we look at the process as far as it's standing up to legal challenges and following legal precedent and court rulings, how does all that play out? Well, it's important that they have to follow the rules that Congress prescribed. It's called the Administrative Procedures Act. And they have to give, they have to kind of dot all those I's and cross all those T's, and I, that sounds like a broken record. But it really is looking at all the costs that are associated with it, and then all the impacts. You know, how does it impact other environmental laws? How does it impact, uh, you know, private property? How does it impact small business? They have to do all of that. And they, in order to have a rule that, that we think that is that the public will embrace, they have to do those things, and they have to do them, and they have to do them right. And you just can't rush through that. It is a methodical process, uh, and and we want them to do it right. I would argue that a, a lot of what the last administration was rushed through those things, and they didn't take the time to really understand what states and the public needed, particularly farmers and ranchers, uh, in a rule that, that would protect water quality. Agriculture wasn't the only group that was in opposition to the Obama Waters of the U.S. rule. Others opposed it as well. Are they uh, involved in this uh, uh, writing of the new rule as well? Are they getting input in there? Mike, uh, I will say that broadly there's probably more people in more associations that represent everybody from agriculture to Main Street that has an oar in the water on this. Uh, everybody is concerned because when you when you push a regulatory overreach as far as the last administration did, it really does endanger the way people conduct their daily lives, where they build homes, where they build roads, how we do our business, and and ultimately how farmers farm the land. And and we want this rule to be clear. We want it to not try to micromanage and over-regulate every decision in the economy. And, and I can tell you that everybody from that's in the construction industry, everybody that's in the, the ener- energy industry, everybody that's in the real estate industry, every, just across the board, people are very concerned about this, and they are taking this opportunity before they propose to rule to kind of work with the administration to figure out what is the right approach. So that input from agriculture and others, has that already been received and that's it? Now you wait, or is it an ongoing process where they continue to seek more information from you? Well, the good news, it is an ongoing process. Uh, They have been receiving a lot and holding a lot of uh, 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 listening sessions with people, uh, both uh, over the Internet, over, you know, doing uh, phone call-in town halls. They've been doing a lot of that. But it really does. Now it's going to come down to more formal input. People are going to have an opportunity to write technical comments on why this works and why it doesn't. And and ultimately, it'll be the agency's job to kind of sift through all of those and and separate the wheat from the chaff and and refine a rule through this process that works for for the American people. 
All right. So in the meantime, uh, what's what's the law of the land right now when it comes to waters of the U.S.? You know, I wish I could say that it was crystal clear, but it's not. Uh, right now, we are dealing with regulations that were put into place in 1986, as well as uh, several Supreme Court cases that have basically had a lot to say about what the statute says about waters of the U.S. Uh, we talk about Swank. Uh, and that court, that Supreme Court case said that the federal government could not regulate isolated intrastate waters. Uh, and we also talk about Rapanos that said the federal government could not regulate any hydrologic connection. They had only could regulate things that were very important. So I think all of those things are going to come in play in the new in the new regulation, and they're going to come into play in ways that I think um, that that hopefully is clear, that is, that it doesn't take a lot of guidance. We hope that it is easier to administer, and I hope to keep uh, keep my farmers and ranchers that are members of the American Farm Bureau Federation uh, out of conflict with the agencies. All right, Don, thank you. We want to keep this out in front of people so we're aware of what's going on. Thanks for the update. Absolutely, and just remember, this was the reg agenda, and I, I, I promise you this is an opportunity for the administrator and what really has to happen, it kind of aligns with what they're doing, and we look forward to working through this process. Okay, Don Parrish with the American Farm Bureau Federation. Thanks again, Don. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Hey, the latest on the NAFTA, the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, wants the administration to get um, get the deal to them by May 17th. That's uh, next Thursday to submit That's the deadline he's setting to submit a NAFTA deal if the administration wants Congress to vote on the revised agreement this year. And he also made it clear that he doesn't just want a promise for a deal. He says we have to have the paper, not just an agreement. We have to have the paper from USTR by May 17th for us to vote on it this year. Meanwhile, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer has told lawmakers he's taking steps to tackle Canada's milk pricing program, which of course the U.S. dairy industry would like to uh, see uh, change. That's a big uh, point of contention in these talks, and we haven't heard much about it, getting anything done on it till right now. And here we are uh, just a week or so away from what House Speaker Paul Ryan says is a deadline to get a deal to Congress. Well, a lot of numbers out yesterday from USDA. We're going to talk with Arlen Suderman from INTL FC Stone about those numbers next on Adams on Agriculture. Around 3500 BC, someone used basic tools and slabs of wood to invent the wheel. Genius. In 1879, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Genius. In 1899, a Norwegian with degrees in electronics, science, and mathematics invented the paperclip genius there's genius and then there's pure genius at BASF that's what drove us to develop Ingenia herbicide our most advanced dicamba formulation ever for dicamba tolerant cotton and soybeans it gives you a low volatility solution at the lowest dicamba use rate ever offered providing an additional site of action to outsmart the toughest weeds even the glyphosate resistant ones grow smart with Ingenia herbicide from BASF a flexible solution that's pure genius. Talk to your representative today. Learn more at ingeniaherbicide.com. BASF. We create chemistry. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted use pesticide. Always read and follow label directions. 
You're listening to Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network. I'm Rusty Halverson. Grand and soybean futures on the defensive on this Friday, despite a USDA report that many considered friendly in showing that global supplies of crops like corn were trending lower. But analysts say that some traders are skeptical about the projections, betting that further evidence of serious weather issues in places like the Southern Plains, Brazil, and the Black Sea region are needed for those figures to come to pass. On the charts for corn, July on the downside, Tuesday's low at 399 and a quarter, first support, then the 20-day moving average, secondary support at 397. We are flirting with that level an hour into the trading day on this Friday. On the downside for July soybeans, initial support lies at 1010 and 3 quarters. A breakdown below that floor could open the door to a fresh selling wave and leave July soybeans vulnerable to a test of 994 and a half, hovering around 1005 and a half down 15 and a half cents early on this Friday. The Ag Department says U.S. wheat production due to increase this year despite a multi-month drought striking the southern plains. Chicago wheat trending a nickel and a fraction lower, six and a fraction lower in Kansas City wheat. Minneapolis spring wheat four to four and a fraction lower. New crop September down four and a half at six eleven and a quarter. Livestock futures remain mostly lower early Friday morning. Traders seemingly unwilling to quickly step back into the market after triple-digit advances in the nearbys on Thursday. Live cattle trending 65 to 82 cents lower, 80 to a dollar lower in feeder cattle, 22 to $1.47 lower in lean hog futures. Outside markets, the Dow up 112, NASDAQ up a point, S&P up 7, crude oil down 28. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson. What if you had a medical emergency away from home? What you need is Mobile Help, America's premier mobile medical alert system. Most systems only work at home, but with Mobile Help, you get help outside the home with coverage nationwide on one of the largest cellular networks at the press of a button. I press the button and lo and behold, the emergency came within minutes. Mobile Help did save my life. No question about that. Call Mobile Help now for a free color brochure. We'll send you everything you need, including the base station, the patented mobile device, the waterproof pendant and wrist button. You can also add the fall button that automatically detects falls and signals help. Call today and receive a risk-free 30-day trial. There's no equipment to buy and no long-term contract. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free emergency key box with your plan purchase. Remember, mobile help keeps you safe coast to coast. Call 800-930-6137 now for your free mobile help brochure. That's 800-930-6137. Again, 800-930-6137. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. All right, let's take a look at some of the numbers out from USDA yesterday. Joining us is Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Arlen, thanks for joining us. As always, you get a big report out and the USDA kind of leaves you scratching your head sometimes. Okay, how did they do that? How do they come up with those particular numbers? And I guess this uh, report, no different. Yeah, absolutely. I think they created more questions than answers. It was a really kind of a strange report day. I mean, we expected there would be a lot of surprises in it. We got a lot of surprises, and and even the algos had trouble trading it yesterday. And uh, we didn't get near the volatility in that first minute of trade that algos normally give us. 
and uh, then ended up with a negative reaction to a positive report on the corn and soybean sides, and you always got to take aware, uh, take a warning when that happens. Okay, so what was your takeaway from the report yesterday? I think there's three big takeaways that I see from it. Uh, first of all, on the wheat side, that we're finally starting to trend lower on domestic and global wheat stocks, but we're still amply supplied. That may change if we continue to see drought problems in South Russia and in Australia and, and in the U.S. Plains, but uh, for now we're amply supplied, and, and uh, the market still needs to find a home for that wheat. Um, both on the milling side and in the feed bunk side. Now, that may be helped if we see corn prices continue to rise and those drought problems continue, uh, but for now we're amply supplied. Second takeaway that I see from it is soybean stocks are starting to trend lower as well, but based on a couple of interesting assumptions. Uh, the first assumption is that uh, Brazil will have flat production in the year ahead. Uh, now, granted, they had some above-trend yields the last couple of years, uh, but when you look at the currency exchange rates and what that does for the profitability of growing soybeans right now in Brazil and the current price levels, Brazilian farmers are excited about the possibility of expansion. And, and it's too early to know what that expansion is going to be, but there's some talk it could be as big as 5 to 7%. So even with normal trend yield, you're going to get some growth in production there. The other assumption is they're assuming extensive growth in demand in China for soybeans in the 2018-19 marketing year at a time when China is building a lot of ethanol plants and really ramping up their DDG production that's going to compete with the soy mill. And so I think that's another assumption we have to question going forward. The third uh, take home from it is USDA confirmed what we've been saying about declining corn stocks at a significant pace as demand continues to outpace production. Uh, however, because of how USDA does their balance sheet, where they don't acknowledge the size of China's reserve, they don't include China's reserve on their balance sheet at all, now that China's injecting large quantities of corn into their feed stream, USDA doesn't know how to account for that. And so their numbers really didn't add up as they tried to do so, and I think that created a lot of confusion and uncertainty and skepticism. So China's still the wild card, and it's just so hard to to make uh, predictions on, on what's happening with China or what will happen with China because there is so much unknown. Yeah, there really is. Um, the, first of all, the trade's very skeptical about whether we'll see the 25% tariff or not. I think they're fearful that we will on soybeans, and that's another reason they're really skeptical about believing USDA's tighter soybean stocks number at this point, particularly when current export shipments lag the pace that we need to be on to even hit this year's target by about 140 million bushels. I do think that we will see more strength in soybean shipments as we get later in the summer, um, but the market's skeptical until we do see that. On the corn side, the one thing I am fairly confident of is China does want to move forward in the 10% ethanol mandate. Uh, and we've seen right now China in the last five, six weeks has dumped a billion bushels plus of corn, reserve corn, onto their market with at a discount because it's lower quality from years 2013, 14, 15. Uh, so it's got a lower quality coming out of their uh, lower quality storage, shall we say. Um, but yet it's had very little impact on their cash market. And that's just how strong the demand is there, is they're really ramping up demand. 
Um, so that's still a story of how it's going to play out. It's going to really prove interesting. There's very little margin for error in the corn balance sheet domestically or globally this year. Now, maybe we'll get a big crop and, you know, above trend yields again, and we'll keep it amply supplied, but there's not much room for error if we have a short crop. I'd be really concerned if I was an end user. We're talking with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTLFC Stone. So, Arlen, it's uh, become pretty fashionable for those in your business uh, these days to be bullish on corn. We're hearing more and more of that. How bullish are you? Well, I've been bullish uh, for corn. I hate to use the word bullish because everyone thinks $8 corn, and I don't buy into that uh, story at at this point. Reasonably bullish, right? Reasonably bullish? I I am friendly corn because I see strong dynamics. I've been... I've been speaking this for uh, all winter long at meetings that I've been speaking at that I see improving fundamentals going forward over the next two to three years that the market needs to price in, uh, needs to stimulate expanded production of corn. Now, that expanded production is likely going to happen in Brazil and in the Black Sea region for the most part, but the world needs to get a price that will expand that corn production over the next couple of years uh, in order to meet the demand that we see out there. Wheat is going to feed some of that. Now, that's part of getting the wheat stocks down, so there's going to be some wheat in there, and that's why I'm not immediately bullish. And I, I, think, I don't think we have to go to $8 because I think the market will buy a lot of production in Brazil and uh, in uh, the Black Sea region at $5 corn. Uh, but uh, it, will, it is more positive than what we've seen the last few years. Do you see any positive news for wheat? that I see corn going higher. I mean, that's the best news that we have, uh, that wheat can follow it. I do see the world market slowly creeping higher. Uh, The funds like owning the commodity sector as a whole, and wheat's part of that piece of the pie. And so it's getting pulled higher because of that. When the funds are positive, the commodities and see inflation happening on a global scale uh, and buy the commodity indices, they're in essence buying wheat. It changes the way they view uh, the fundamentals, they look at it through a different filter. Um, but wheat is still going to be the, the the weak dog in this. All right. When we look at the soybean picture, Arlen, I mean, we keep increasing soybean acres. Um, when does that have diminishing returns? Are you concerned about where we're headed there? I, I really am. And uh, our surveys that we're doing with our clients continue to show increased soybean acres this year, not decreased like USDA is saying. It's a very consistent message. And now we're also seeing that with spring wheat planting delays uh, in the Dakotas, uh, some move toward more soybean acres. Now, whether we get the double crop acres or not is, is going to be a question because of the really late wheat maturity we're seeing this year. That may kind of squelch some of the double crop soybean acres. But with what we see expansion in Brazil and solid production Argentina this next year um, and some increase in acres here in the United States this year, uh, unless we have a significant weather problem, I, I still do not. I've been a long-term soybean bull over the years, um, but I don't see it this time around. I, I think that we're amply supplied without a significant weather event. So, Arlen, what's the market focus now with with this report behind us? Does the focus really center now on uh, weather and, and crop progress uh, here? Uh, there's two keys that the market's focused on right now, I believe, and 
Uh, I guess we could add a third, but uh, the one certainly is the safrina corn crop in Brazil. The dry areas expected to start seeing some showers that will provide some relief. The losses are still there. Our team in Brazil has the crop at 83.9 million metric tons. That's still below USDA, and that still means more export business for us. I see a solid export year ahead for us on corn. And then the Midwest, do we get the acres in, and then what kind of growing season? Now, we're in the camp that we think we're going to have a good growing season, so we're counting on a trend yield this year. Um, I guess the third thing you could throw in there is going to come back to what's the quality losses in the Argentine crop from the persistent rains. We know there was sprouting and shattering that took place. How widespread was that in about a, the third of the crop that was still left to be harvested? And finally, I guess, uh, when you look at the response to yesterday's uh, report, are you surprised at market response today? Uh, I'm not surprised today after seeing yesterday. I was surprised yesterday. Uh, and so here again, when friendly news fails to take the market higher, take note. And that's, that's basically what we saw happen, and that's why we're getting the pullback. I think eventually the break gets bought in corn. In fact, across the commodity sector, we continue to see the breaks in the commodities be bought and are slowly appreciating higher. Uh, but particularly, uh, I think corn will probably have the best opportunity for that near term in the grain sector. Not $8 corn. Not $8 corn, no. But could be what? Well, right now my balance sheet, and I have ending stocks at 4.84 billion bushels, just a little below 1.5, a little below USDA, and uh, I have a 465 marketing year average cash price, which would suggest that futures spend a little bit of time over $5 at some point. All right, Arlen, we'll see. Thanks a lot. Always appreciate your insight into this. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Good to talk with you. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. His thoughts on the, the big report out yesterday and uh, uh, what the market's focusing on moving forward now. A lot of talk about the Farm Bill. We've been talking about it. We look ahead to next week, potential vote next week. Well, the House version of the Farm Bill also includes a provision that supporters say could provide farmers with less expensive but also less comprehensive health insurance than plans offered through the uh, Affordable Care Act. We'll get the very latest on that from the National Rural Health Association. That is coming up next. Stay with us. This is AOA, Adams on Agriculture. crew let's get her dug honey you want to give me a hand i'm planting that tree remember no matter how large or small your digging project may be no matter how urban or rural you must always call 811 before any digging project 811 is our national one call number alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site you must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this or this, 
make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. Do you need a car? Been shopping only to be turned down because of bad credit, low credit, no credit, bankruptcy, or divorce? Guess what? Today's your lucky day. Because now you can buy a car, truck, or SUV, just about any vehicle. It's true. Bad credit doesn't matter. No credit doesn't matter. Bankruptcy or divorce, it just doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, your job is your ticket to your new vehicle. We're Auto Credit Express, and we've helped thousands of people just like you. Antonio H. told us, great company, got me connected, and the day I went in, I drove off in the car I wanted. 100% worth your time. Need a car? Get started now and drive off as early as today. Just go to 11ignoremyscore.com right now. That's www.11ignoremyscore.com. Auto financing the easy way. 11ignoremyscore.com. Get started today. Auto financing the easy way. We paid less for our Craftmatic today than we did 20 years ago. If you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and free information on today's Craftmatic adjustable beds. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Rated number one by consumers nationwide on ConsumerAffairs.com. Craftmatic beds come in all mattress types, including cool gel memory foam for up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Enjoy temporary relief of low back pain, poor circulation, nighttime heart for a mild arthritis. You'll sleep better in a Craftmatic adjustable bed. So if you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and information. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Discover Craftmatic for less, up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Call 1-800-318-7903. That's 1-800-318-7903. 1-800-318-7903. Call now. In 1847, Hanson Crockett Gregory invented the donut. Genius. In 1908, Melita Benz invented the paper coffee filter. Genius. In 1928, Otto Frederick Rowetter invented sliced bread. Genius. In 1930, Ruth Wakefield invented the chocolate chip cookie. Mmm, genius. There's genius, and then there's pure genius. At BASF, that's what drove us to develop Ingenia Herbicide our most advanced dicamba formulation ever for dicamba-tolerant cotton and soybeans. It gives you a low-volatility solution at the lowest dicamba use rate ever offered, providing an additional site of action to outsmart the toughest weeds, even the glyphosate-resistant ones. Grow smart with Ingenia Herbicide from BASF, a flexible solution that's pure genius. Talk to your representative today. Learn more at IngeniaHerbicide.com. BASF, we create chemistry. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted use pesticide. Always read and follow label directions. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat. I would flip flop all night long. I'd wake up with a sore neck or maybe a headache, or I'd feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. Well, when I invented my pillow, I wanted it so you could adjust the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep REM sleep faster and you will stay there longer. It's not how much time we spend in bed, it's how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all my own manufacturing in my home state of Minnesota with a 10-year warranty and you can wash and dry my pillow and here's my best offer ever get four my pillows for the price of one that's right get four my pillows two premium pillows and two travel pillows for the price of one order my pillow at 800-871-7280 and use promo code 
farm 11 get four my pillows for the price of one call 800-871-7280 and use promo code farm 11 go to mypillow.com and at checkout use promo code farm 11 information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams Welcome back. Well, we know health care costs are a concern for about everybody. Um, certainly farmers are dealing with the, that issue, and it, we've talked a lot about it, about those rising costs and uh, how hard it is in many places rural America to even find uh, the health care or get to the health care facilities that they need. So there, it's, a, it's a, a problem with several different uh, levels to it. Um, part of the farm bill that we haven't really talked much about, there there is a provision there that supporters – uh, say could help farmers with a less expensive, albeit less comprehensive, health insurance uh, plan than is offered through the Affordable Care Act. We're going to find out more about that now from Diane Kalmus. She is a government affairs and policy manager for the National Rural Health Association. Diane, thanks for joining us. What can you tell us about this provision? Well, thanks so much for having me on. Well, this provision in the Farm Bill um, offers loans and grants to um, agricultural associations that are looking to start these sorts of health um, plans. This can be both good and bad and and really needs to be looked at kind of more holistically. We need to make sure, as you said, that these are plans that are covering what the individuals in the plans need, as well as keeping options available for those outside of the plan. So by having additional plan offerings, the concern is always that for those who wouldn't be eligible for these agricultural association plans, um, it could leave fewer options available in the exchanges than we're already seeing. And as you alluded to, we're already seeing a loss of plan options in the exchanges that have already been set up. And unfortunately, rural areas is really where we're seeing the most of that. 80% of the counties that have lost plan options have been rural. That's a huge concern. Now, in this version, $65 million in USDA loans and grants would go towards helping organizations establish ag-related policies. Do we have any idea how many uh, organizations might be interested in that? So we don't have a lot of idea of how many people, how many organizations are going to be interested in this. We do know that there is interest um, ag associations have long had interest in, in providing health care options for their members. Obviously, within the farming community, there's often a concern about where to get a health plan. And we know that the data shows us that a number of farm families have a spouse that gets a job for the purpose of having health insurance. And so this is a real problem for so many agricultural families. So this is in the House version, and we wait to see if that will pass. Do we know, uh, is it in the Senate version? Or we don't know the Senate version yet, but are they talking about it on the Senate side? We don't know the Senate version yet, and the Senate is not quite as far in their process um, as the House is right now in there. Um, We continue to watch. We know that there's been discussions of these provisions um, and of these sorts of plans. Um, what the specifics will show up in the Senate version still remains to be seen. We're talking with Diane Kalmus with the National Rural Health Association. Diane, as we look to possibly a vote next week in the House on their version of the Farm Bill, anything else in there that 
jumps out at you from a rural health uh, perspective? Well, there are some positive things in there. Obviously, again, there is um, continuing support for telemedicine programs. Um, that is a really positive for a lot of rural areas. Telehealth provides a lot of opportunities to access medical care that might not be available locally without such programs. Um, additionally, there's the reauthorization of the Farm and Network, um, which has been has been authorized in previous farm bills. However, what is not provided here and what was not provided in previous farm bills is funding for that program. Um, finally, there is um, additional provisions that would deal with health crisis, crises in rural America. This really is specifically targeted right now at the opioid epidemic that we're seeing in far too many rural areas. The provision is written to be flexible so that as these health crises change, um, that this can address multiple crises. Um, but right now, we anticipate that there would be a authorization um, based on the current opioid crisis. And that really is kind of the target of this with that, that flexibility and that view towards um, future potential issues as, as these crises wax and wane. Diane, overall, the rural health issue, I think, is one that is not talked about enough. I mean, I mentioned it has several layers. I mean, affordable health care is one thing. Available health care is another uh, real challenge in rural America. Absolutely, and that's why we are still working um, with some House offices as well as Senate offices to additionally provide more protections and more assistance for rural providers. Obviously, we've seen a crisis of rural hospital closures. We've seen 83 closures since 2010 of rural hospitals. And as you know, having that, that local provider really is a bedrock piece to a community. Without local health care, it's very difficult to bring in additional economic opportunities within those communities. And unfortunately, we, when we see the local hospital closing, we see the community die. Um, so we're working to authorize through the business and industry loans, the BNI program, some additional supports for those hospitals that are really struggling that we think has some promise. And, and we continue to work with the USDA, with both of the agriculture committees, and with a number of committee members to try to make that a reality. So it's overlooked at times, but the farm bill does uh, have an impact on rural health care. Absolutely. The farm bill really is a much more comprehensive rural package than is oftentimes understood based on the name farm bill. We think it's just agriculture. But healthcare is a huge part of having a robust rural area and specifically a huge part of having a robust farm economy. You can't have farmers if they aren't healthy. All right, Diane, thanks for the update. So we'll watch closely uh, what happens in the House next week and then, of course, wait for that Senate version of the farm bill as well. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. Diane Kalmus, Government Affairs and Policy Manager for the National Rural Health Association. With that, we wrap up a very busy week and it looks like another busy one coming up next week. Perhaps a farm bill vote, much more going on. Uh, one of our guests on Monday will be Iowa Senator Charles Grassley. He'll give us a Washington update and uh, much more to talk about as well. But in the meantime, have a great weekend, a safe one. Be careful out there. Thanks for joining us on AOA Adams on agriculture.